Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This episode of Hang Up and Listen is sponsored by QuickBooks. If you work for yourself, try QuickBooks Self-Employed. It helps separate your business and personal expenses, estimate your federal quarterly taxes, and more. See what QuickBooks Self-Employed can do for you with a free 30-day trial at tryselfemployed.com slash hangup. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of May 26th, 2015. On this week's show, we'll talk NBA playoffs. Steph Curry, LeBron James, why marketing sheepdog fans have made NBA games look like a meeting of the all-union Leninist Young Communist League. Then we'll be joined by former NFL place kicker Nate Kading to discuss the league's latest attempt to screw the kicker, making the extra point a 33-yard kick instead of a 20-yard one. Your efforts to destroy the kicker are futile, NFL futile. Finally, ESPN correspondent Jeremy Schapp will be here to discuss his recent reporting on our friend Sepp Blatter, who this week will be sham re-elected to his 47th term as the head of soccer's governing body, FIFA. I swear we'll talk hockey next week, people, because holy shit, the playoffs have been awesome. Josh Levine, the executive editor of Slate Magazine, is away this week. I'm in Washington. Making his debut as a panelist on this program is Richard Deitch, who writes about media for Sports Illustrated, which is a magazine and a website. Welcome, Richard. Howdy. Alongside him at Slate's offices in New York City is Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist, with Mike Pesca. Hi, Mike. Uh, hello, Stefan. Stefan, I feel you have almost a sacred a sacred vow in the intro not to inflect it with too much opinion. And I got to say, the screw the kicker stuff, it got my blood boiling. But we'll, get to, we'll get to the kicker when we get to the kicker. I want to blood last, the blood. The blood should be boiling on this program, Mike. <laughs> screw the kicker. Ugh. 
All right. In addition to the aforementioned topics of conversation, we will ponder New York Knicks owner and Lucky Sperm Club member James Dolan's decision to hire legally adjudged sexual harasser Isaiah Thomas to run a women's basketball team. That, however, is a bonus segment available only to Slate Plus members. Another way to look at that is that we're quarantining Isaiah Thomas for your convenience. You can thank (laughs) us later. (laughs) You can get a free two-week trial at Slate.com slash hangup plus. If that's not enough of a lure, then the debut of the first Slate Academy should be. It's called The History of American Slavery, and it will help you understand how much or how little you really know about America's foundational institution. Join Slate's Jamel Bowie, Rebecca Onion, and leading academics and historians for The History of American Slavery. This nine-part podcast series is exclusively for members of Slate Plus. Visit slate.com slash academy to learn more about that. Stephen Curry is on the cover of the Sports Illustrated magazine dated Sunday, May 25th. And what happened on that very day? Steph Curry fell on his head may or may not have been concussed, and his team, the Golden State Warriors, was blown out by the Houston Rockets, 128 to 115. I blame you, Deitch, and your magazine, mm-hmm. and it's historically and scientifically irrefutable covered jinx. But before we get to the Rockets and LeBron James and his 3 nothing series lead over the Atlanta Hawks, let's discuss Curry's head contusion, as everyone was calling it on ESPN last night. Richard Deitch, you're a media expert. What did you make of how ESPN handled the head contusion? First of all, I really want to be the first person to curse on this podcast, and that, unfortunately, I cannot be. So, damn it. Um, I, um, that's a good question because, you know, you're always, you're always watching to see how the league broadcasters handle situations when it comes to medical issues, when it comes to you know, serious issues of labor. And, uh, you know, I, 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 would, I would say they did a mediocre job, and I'm choosing that word specifically. I think they touched on it, and they, they initially touched on, on the idea that, man, wow, this, uh, you know, this injury looks really bad. They showed it, like there's a Bruder film a number of times, and you really just saw just how painful it looked uh, or and how visceral it sort of felt to see Curry land on his head. But then as the game broadcast went on, I don't know if you guys noticed this, we morphed from an issue of sort of medical and where the doctor's responsibility are to look how tough Steph Curry is. Mike Breen right. said he praised Curry for his toughness right. in so returning to the game. And this is the kind of nonsense and junk that we used to get from NFL broadcasters, John Madden and the rest of the like, about how this is a tough guy. What a tough guy hit. Man, that guy just rung his bell. That's the kind of stuff that now we look back years later, absolute nonsense um, and, and really dangerous. So... I would call it a mixed bag. I never expect league broadcasters to sort of go to the place that I would like them to go to. But we started delving near the end of the night into the, you know, the quote unquote toughness and machismo of Steph Curry. And we forgot about the larger issue, at least on the broadcast of like, you know, man, what was the protocol here? And should this guy be in a game where he just took that kind of tumble? He showed this showed why he was the MVP. It's not just his play. (laughs) It's his toughness. And I have a little sympathy. I think that playing through pain does show something. Exceptions include when it's a head injury and when your team is up three to nothing. I I think that matters also. Because to me, there was no 
Uh, everything's on the line. There was no do or die. There's If there ever is a time to be prudent, you are not going to be the first team after 116 teams go up three to nothing. You are not going to be the first team to be swept, especially with the Warriors being as good as they are, blah, blah, blah. And Steph- especially with the Rockets being ahead by almost 20 points. Yes. Steph Curry at that moment needed prudence. And it's harder to come up with the vocabulary to glorify prudence, right? And it makes for, in a blowout, when you're Mm -hmm. trying to inject some form of drama as the broadcaster, you have to bring it because the game's not providing it. I understand. I understand the impulse. I understand almost the economic, perceived economic necessity, but you have to pull back. The one thing I would say is this, um, and I do think it's important. I don't know if you guys agree. I do give Steve Kerr the benefit of the doubt more than other coaches, because I think, one, he's a thoughtful guy, and I think he's proven that with his team. Two, he's a former player, and I think he does understand the kind of medical issues that exist. And he has not at this point, and maybe part of it is because he's a rookie coach, has struck me as a, you know, I'm winning at all costs. Reckless. Yeah, reckless. Damn my player if he's hurt. So I intentionally watched the post-game press conference afterwards, and I thought Kerr was good. He talked about doctors went through the protocol. Doctors cleared him. Steph came in. I still, like you guys, as a sideline doctor, I would not have played him after he got hurt. But I do, you know, at least I felt better with Kerr on the sideline than maybe 15 other coaches. But there is a reason to play him. I mean, we don't know. Maybe the, maybe he went through the protocols and he was fine. I, right. I'm going to compare myself to the reigning MVP. I cracked my head in a low slung doorway at an ancient inn this memorial day yeah that's right you could give me you could give me some and of how are you not thing. on the cover of si exactly. for that exactly how am i, I not i saw the video of it Pesca. come on i saw the video of it yeah that. well i was i was on the cover of uh, podcaster illustrated <laughs> and there's the curse there also but the thing is so it hurt and i put some ice on it and i kept telling my girlfriend it's fine and i i went about my day um, in a way that maybe if there was someone commenting on it would have said, hey, be prudent. So who am I to say that Steph Curry, who had an actual workup through an actual physician, and I don't mm-hmm. think the NBA for a few, they are professional athletes, but they're not football and baseball with their warrior culture and also their non-guaranteed contracts. There doesn't seem to be this history of really putting players in harm's way because of concussions with the Warriors, with Steph Curry. So, you know, maybe, maybe the guy was totally cleared and there's something to be gained from getting a couple of minutes just to show yourself going into the next game. Hey, instead of instead of having the first few minutes of the next game be the question, am I okay? Get that out of the way in game four. There's something to that. All right, three little points before we move off of this. When Curry came back in the game, he threw up an air ball, had two shots blocked through a terrible pass. Jeff Van Gundy announcing did finally wonder whether Curry should have been playing in that situation. So some credit to Van Gundy. And three, you want some anecdotal evidence that the Warriors historically haven't been great curry had in uh in november 2013 what the team called a mild concussion which is bullshit um and in may 2013 harrison barnes fell on his head was prone for several minutes rushed back into the game but then was removed with what were termed headache symptoms so there is history in basketball as in other sports of some if not carelessness then at least a lack of, of of total prudence um But let's talk about why the Warriors have been so great. Um, I know why I like watching them. Ball movement, three-point shooting, Curry's little jitterbug step-back threes, the fact that he's small, and his teammates' efficiency. Um, 
They've been averaging 1.08 or 1.09 points per possession, depending on which metric you want to look at. Basically tied with the Clippers this season, well ahead of the rest of the league. And they've got a guy named Festus Azili. What else am I missing here, Mike Pesca? Uh, their defense is great. You know, their defense is so underrated because their offense is good, and it's not the case. The Rockets used to have a pretty bad defense, and they couldn't get stops, and this led uh, Charles Barkley to, you know, question all uh, advanced statistics because they can't get stops. The Rockets have tightened up enough. The Warriors are just good. They're just a damn good defense. And if they had a more ball control, fewer possession type offense, they'd show up in the conventional stats as one of these great defenses. It's amazing that they could get that defense out of not just the personnel they have. Steph Curry isn't a great, he'll never be a great defender. But you also, maybe we don't realize that when Steph Curry and Klay Thompson are running so much on the offensive end to free themselves up. I mean, Clay Thompson, if they put the meter on him, runs miles per game. They, they should be exhausted at the defensive end. So the fa- And then you have guys like David Lee, like one of the worst defenders ever coming in off the bench. They have all these defensive um, liabilities that they've turned into assets. That's the underlying amazing thing. And the, and the uh, sheen of it, what any casual fan sees is you can't stop the shooters. And that's an amazing thing to watch. Yeah, I mean, you guys I think hit on everything that we like about them. I, I just I like just how unselfish they are. They give up the ball. Passing in basketball is beautiful. It's art. The guys on that team run without the ball, go to their spots, and they get the ball. We romanticize like the quote unquote the beautiful game, or you know Phil Jackson talks about how his Knicks were like this beautiful passing team probably before our time. And whatever Jackson romanticizes about the Knicks. It's kind of what I envision today's Warriors are. It's just five people playing for each other, and whoever has the open shot takes the open shot. It's They, they are really an interesting basketball team, and presuming it's the Cavaliers and the Warriors, which I think it will be, sets up a really interesting finals and a contrast of two of two teams. It's you know If you believe Styles, quote-unquote, the old cliche, make fights, that should be a, it should be a pretty interesting series. Before we get on to the, the Cavs, one one stat here that I loved, a piece on 538.com, which calculated ELO ratings for every NBA team in history. That's a great table. The Warriors' ELO rating for the current season would rank them third or fourth, depending on which uh, the mean or average or whatever that you use, behind the 96, 97, 95, 96, and 91, 92 bowls. Um, do we know all-time greatness, Mike, when we're watching it? Are we um, watching all-time greatness? Or I is think that in, just you know what's yeah. You know what's getting in the way of this? Everything would say to us, "This is an all-time great team." Except it's a Warriors team who we right. expect to be bad and haven't been good before. If this was, this might be the high watermark of some sort of mini dynasty. But let's say they had won championships, and then we see this team on the floor, we would be talking about one of the great teams of all time. Now, though, I want to interrupt for a second. I want to give you my personal ELO ratings. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Um, Richard Tandy. Roy Wood and Jeff Lynn. You knew Jeff Lynn was going to be number one. It had to be. That's my yeah. yellow. Yeah. yeah. Yellow. Way over 1900 ELO rating. Yeah. Jeff Lynn. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. We're recording a podcast on Tuesday morning. The Cavs and the Hawks play game four on Tuesday night. In game three, LeBron James scored 37 points. He had 18 rebounds. He single handedly orchestrated Cleveland's home win, fell to the floor in, exha- in exhaustion when the game ended. Richard, your buddy Skip Bayless offered a master class in Twitter trolling afterward when he wrote, LeBron really toughed it out versus a team without Horford Corver and a one-legged Damari. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, the morning was going so well, and then you had to mention Voldemort's name. Um, I mean, truly, the, the, that guy is the biggest monorail salesman 
in the history of monorail salesmen. And shame on ESPN management for looking the other way as they enter their third house in the Hamptons. Um, is there a chance the track might bend? <laughs> there, there is a, there's a very good sense of track. There is a chance the track might bend. Um, Listen, to move off Bayless, who we all know is a con I just want that was just, I was trolling you. You, you so. were trolling me. He's a con yeah. man and, and obviously is conning and playing LeBron uh, and has been for a long time. I, by the way, I'll give you guys a little inside baseball. I, I honestly do not know this, but this is my theory. Yeah. Lee Jenkins, terrific writer for my magazine who um, wrote the story of LeBron going back to Cleveland for Sports Illustrated. No doubt a lot of that was Lee's relationship with LeBron. I truly believe... Or maybe I just hope to believe that somewhere LeBron's camp was so angry and pissed off at all the trolling first take has done on LeBron that they decided to go away from ESPN and to a place like ours. I can't prove this, but this is my uh, conspiracy theory. But moving on. No, but it's smart because if you get that idea out there, ESPN, like you said, eighth house in the Hamptons, they're right. never going to stop Skip Bayless. Maybe you could convince them that there is an incentive uh, on other aspects right. of the organization. I'm incentivizing them right, right, to right. change, which, as That's we both right. know, or, or all of us know, will not happen. Uh, where I would I would ask you guys this. I mean, accomplished podcasters, two of the finest men I've just met. Um, <laughs> where would ca- the Cavaliers winning rank for you guys in terms of? in individual NBA athletes' sort of all-time accomplishments. I mean, if you look at the Cavs roster, <laughs> admittedly, Kyrie is an all-star, but the rest of that roster, I mean, it's insane what but he's But Kyrie's done. hurt. Ky- and he's hurt, yeah. right. So where and should, Kevin if, Love is hurt. If somehow, and Kevin Love, if, if somehow the Cavs could beat the Warriors, where, where should we view that accomplishment for LeBron James? The thing is... If it were to happen, it would be unbelievable, but the Cavs have played a bunch of teams that are just banged up as they are. Cephalosha, now Corver's gone, you know, the Bulls. Okay, the Bulls were somewhat healthy, but we're talking about a Rose team. Maybe they're never going to be truly healthy. I think that, I think it would be the most amazing thing, especially against this Warriors team that we're talking about. It's an all-time great. Yeah. Yeah. And LeBron, let's point out, has not been super great statistically in these playoffs. Sean Woodley on Crossover Chronicles noted that he's had a league leading 128 isolations, but he scored just 0.7 points per possession. He's only shooting 40%, scoring only 0.74 points per possession. But volume matters with this guy. He, yeah. In game three, he had uh, what I like to call an Iverson, at least 20 points and 20 missed shots. <laughs> well, the first 10, right? Didn't he miss it? First the 10. first quarter, he missed all of them. And he missed some easy ones. But yeah. at that point, I love you you know you're the you know you're an Iverson when the compliment is that he had the guts to not stop shooting. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was crazy. His usage rate in the game was 43.8%. That's 5 percentage points higher than Russell Westbrook's rate this season. And that was five percentage points higher than number two, Kobe Bryant. Yeah. So you know, I don't speaking James of Kobe. Just, it's like everything. Speaking of Kobe Bryant, I don't think that this is what's going on with James. I think James really does want better players around him, mm-hmm. and I think Kobe wanted to have the ball on every possession, right? I think right. he wanted to be in the position where he said, "Oh, who the hell am I going to pass to?" And, and Westbrook re- too. Yeah, and I really don't think I think James loves being a facilitator, but there is a psychological component when you know there's no other option. It can help your game, and we saw an, an indication where no love, no Irving. I mean, okay, I'll kick it to Della Vadova if he's open, but damn it, I'm just going to keep shooting. <laughs> but this is where, like, I mean, again, I, I'm, I'm a big LeBron James uh, sort of advocate, which I realize is ridiculous. I mean, he's the best player <laughs> He is <basketball>. quite good. <laughs> but, but the thing is, I'm, I, I actually don't think he gets the credit he deserves because if you step back and look at that roster right now, he's winning with the Knicks. 
I mean, it's incredible. What this... There are three Knicks on the team. Exactly. I mean, yeah. Literally, the third, fourth the literally yeah. the guy is yeah. winning with your 2014-15 yeah. Knicks, yeah. and he's taking them to the finals. Yeah. And Tristan Thompson. But like these Tristan guys, Thompson is right, good, though. Right, yeah. But would we know he's good if he wasn't in a, a, a mash ward where he had to be thrust to the front? Yeah, Timothy Mozgov. Oh, yeah, that guy's good. Really? Another okay. Nick. Yeah. <laughs> Another former Nick, yes. This episode of Hang Up and Listen is sponsored by QuickBooks Self-Employed. If you work for yourself, try QuickBooks Self-Employed. It helps separate your business and personal expenses so you can easily track what you spent for work and what you spent on yourself. It also helps take the guesswork out of your estimated federal quarterly taxes. So come tax time, you know how much money to set aside for Uncle Sam and how much stays in your pocket. Explore what QuickBooks Self-Employed can do for you with a free 30-day trial at tryselfemployed.com slash hang. In 1973, place kickers made a record 63% of their field goal attempts. The next year, the NFL pushed the goalposts from the goal line to the back of the end zone. 20 years later, kickers made three quarters of their three-pointers, so the league put the ball at the spot of the kick after a miss instead of the line of scrimmage. In 1999, after field goal makes climbed to 80%, kickers were given rock-hard K-balls to kick in games. I noted those statistics in a 2008 piece I wrote for Sports Illustrated, and now the NFL has done it again. Last week, it announced that it is moving the spot of the extra point back 13 yards from the 2 to the 15-yard line, which, with an 8 and a quarter yard snap and those 10 end zone yards yields a 33 yard extra point here to discuss the big k change is nate kading who in his nine-year career almost all of it with the san diego chargers made 352 out of 354 extra points and can definitely tell us about the two that he missed Mm -hmm. welcome to the show (laughs) nate Everybody always focuses on the ones you miss, you know? But, hey, uh, life of a kicker, man. You know, life of a it, kicker. All right. The 20-yard extra point was too easy, too boring. We all know that. Kickers made 1,222 out of 1,230 of them last year. ESPN's Kevin Seifert extrapolated that based on the make rates for kicks of 30 to 35 yards from the middle of the field, we would have seen 30 misses last season instead of eight for extra points. Is that significant, Nate? And does this really make the kicker's life any more challenging? Uh, it does not make it more challenging, I don't think. I mean, it, it's uh, you could put, as you know, Stefan, all 32 of the NFL kickers and put a ball down there at the 35 yards out and uh, without a rush or anything, and probably make a thousand of them <laughs> almost in a row. They, these guys have gotten so good, especially over the last five, five, six, ten years, uh, as you kind of went through the history of, of kicking and um, especially a kicker when when the ball's getting driven down the field, you're able to get into your process better on the sideline and get in your routine. Um, knowing that you're going to be, you know, either kicking a short field goal or what could be an extra point. So, you know, you know it's going to be right in the middle of the field. You know the sequence of how it's all going to play out. Um, so I, I think, you know, I read the uh, the article by Benjamin Morris on the 538 blog, um, you know, the, the statistics of field goals from the middle of the field between that 30 to 35-yard range within the last three years was like 96.4%. So right. I think with extra points, it's even going to be higher because the kickers can can fall back on their routine and their process as the team drives the ball down the field. So it won't be that significant of a change, but I think uh, it's certainly a step in the, I guess, the right direction for the NFL to to liven up that play a little bit. I've always wanted to ask a kicker, how dangerous did you feel that play is when the kick is blocked or the field goal is blocked and now you're on defense and possibly charged with having to take down cornerback (laughs) safety, etc. That to me just seems preposterously very fearful. 
Or, or throw a pass. Yeah. Gary, you're mm-hmm. rest in peace. Exactly. Yeah, luckily, I don't know if I, my hands ever touched a football in live live play before. I guess you know if you, when you put it on the tee, it's one thing. So that, that's lucky for uh, for me and, and probably Chargers fans. I never had the ball in my hands at all. But um, yeah, I mean it's, it's certainly not something you uh, you prepare for. Uh, you know, trying to you know be in that position of hunting a guy down after a blocked field goal. I probably had half a dozen of them blocked or so, a couple extra points and uh, a few field goals along the way. But, yeah, I mean, you, you try to, you know, jump on the guy, do anything you can to get him, get him down and out. You know, that wasn't at all my, my forte, but uh, and you hopefully don't, don't get yourself hurt along the way either. But, um, you know, we practice that. Uh, every time in practice, you know, once a week we practice what they call the fire call where the, the snap is, is botched or the field goal is blocked and people have certain responsibilities um, the ends on the line got to peel back and go and, and uh, you know, have safety responsibility trying to tackle the guys. So, um, yeah, I think as you move it back, you may be seeing a little bit a little bit more of that as, as some of the different variables get, get tossed into the mix as well. But, I mean, the, the offensive linemen just absolutely hate the extra point. They hate, they hate practicing it in practice. And, you know, they, we watch the, the film. It's, you know, some, half, the, half the guys may be kind of going 75% after a long drive. And it's just such a routine play. That, and the guys get themselves put in such weird positions as they're you know, getting their knees buckled as some 400-pound man is jumping on them trying to, trying to bust through the line. So it's a, it's, it's a, it's a play that isn't, isn't liked by a whole lot of people on the, on the field at that time. You know what this rule does, though? It would have allowed you, I, I would have recommended you stay in the game just for the Jimmy Pearsall moment. He was the guy who ran the bases backwards, and you could have been the first guy. <laughs> Let's say the kick comes, you pick it up, run the other way, run out of the back of the end zone. That, for the first time in NFL history, is a one-point play, and a game could <laughs> end with a score of one. It was a chance at history. I have no idea why that's, could that possibly happen? I'll answer the question, no. Here is my real question, Nate. <laughs> my real question is, why would kickers be against something that's harder? Wouldn't kickers want to test their skills more and to be valued more? This idea of trotting a kicker out to do something that's so automatic, it, if anything, I mean, you got to earn your paycheck some way, but it would seem to me it devalues the kicker and that kickers wouldn't mind a 45-yard field mm-hmm. goal as an extra point. Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's a great point. I think that, uh, you know, the, the, like, like I said earlier, the, the level of kicker has gone up so much. You've got guys like Justin Tucker and these guys and uh, the guy down in Dallas, they're just knocking 50-yard field goals through like it's nothing, and that's almost something you didn't see even as close as five years ago. It's just these guys have gotten so good, and their value should go up, and, and, it, and it should be harder, and something that anybody can do. In San Diego, they come out at the in between the third and fourth quarter and bring some, some, some dude out of the stands, and he'd knock through like five extra points in a row to win a new flat-screen TV or something, right? Like it's and it just makes, you know, and if you had just gone out there and missed like a 34-yarder, it just makes you look like a complete schmuck. So it's, you're right. I mean, the harder you make it, it becomes that much more valuable. And, and these are points, and these are hard, points are hard to come by in the National Football League. And they should, they should be, uh, you know, they, they should be earned every time you have to go out there and do it. And the play just becomes so obsolete. And the kickers, you're right, you could, you could go out there and, you know, walk, you know, walk backwards, kick it with your heel and make it. It's, it's, they, need, they need to make it more, more tough. And I think kickers, in the end, will, will see the real value in that because the points will become that much more hard to come by and, and their skill will be, will be valued that much more. Well, I also think to uh, – Dom- I'm sorry to dominate here. But I think that the NFL really miscalculated and they wanted to make a – uh, conversion that was hard enough so that you really were tempted by the two-point conversion, and they're going to see the stats, and they're going to see that this kick is made ninety high ninety percent of the time. But if you get it around, what do you think? What the percent? What's the percentage? I think somewhere in the eighties, people will really be tempted to try the two-point conversion, and that might be bad for kickers, but I think that's good for game excitement. 
Yeah, I think it'd be awesome if they if they found if they did made a, like a data driven decision in terms of okay, this is sort of that breaking point when coaches are really going to be challenged to where, where the where the two points you know becomes that much uh, more reasonable from a from a data success ratio than than it would trying to go for one. I think that'd be that'd be the fun part. Then you've got this play that was just pretty much nothing. People go into the restroom and now hey, this is like some real strategy. Puts the puts the ball in the coach's court. I think that could be really interesting. Um, I think you might get a little bit of that. You know, let's fast forward to a you know playoff game in middle of January in Foxborough and the snow's blowing crazy and you know a 33 yarder is sort of a tough tough proposition. Um, I think you're going to see see some of those decisions perhaps play out in some in, in some inclement weather later in the season, which which could make for some fun. But yeah, I, I would like to see it get pushed back to like that 40. 45-yard range where it really uh, puts the ball in the coach's court, and it could be a you know a fun strategy decision to to watch play out every you know every time a team scores a touchdown. Yeah, Mike and Nate, I think you're both right. I think that the NFL went really conservative with this because if you look at the numbers, the points per attempt for a two-point and extra point are going to wind up being about the same, about .96 uh, of a point for each of those now. Um, and you know there were plenty of other options the NFL apparently did consider or at least could have considered whether that's narrowing the goalpost slightly to make it uh, a little more difficult that way, spotting the ball in different places or going to a longer kick. Um, in a way, yeah, I'm disappointed because I think what you want to do is showcase the kicker's skills and ability because what's not going to change here is the stigma of missing. No one's going to say, oh, well, the extra point is a lot harder than it used to be. Let's give the kicker a break. Um, you know, there's still going to be the expectation of making it um, and you, that it, you didn't quite reach the threshold for people being able to honestly assess that, whoa, that is hard. Um, it's still going to be like, well, that's a chip shot. Right. <laughs> it always looks so easy on the television or up in the 80th row of the stands, too, especially when you're doing it at a 96%, 97% clip. But I haven't, I haven't heard much of what the, what the current active kickers are saying. I think hopefully they're taking the, the long view on it where it does increase their value, like, like Mike had mentioned. Um, but I think you hit it on the head, Stephan. I think you're going to see the the goalpost, uh, you know, they got moved up back, whatever that was, in the 60s or, or 70s, or, or moved back, I guess, to make it mm-hmm. a little bit further um, to, the, to the end line rather than the goal line. I think you're going to see the goalpost get narrowed at some point in time. You go to any NFL practice field right now, and every every kicker practices on the Arena League goalposts, which are half the width of the regular uprights, and you throw those guys out there, they're still making – you know, 85, you know, percent of their, their attempts through a 15 kick practice session, moving all the way back to the 55 yards on, on the arena posts. And I mean, they're, they're that good. I think it, it would add some life to the, to the game. And I think from the kicker's perspective, I think it would make people appreciate a little bit more if it was that challenging. And they look up instead of seeing it, you know, these, these large uprights, like it, like an ocean that they're looking at, uh, you know, on the television, now you can actually see how difficult that can be with those skinny, skinny posts out there. Um, and I think that people would appreciate a little bit more, and I think that you know it would uh, make those points that much more difficult to come by. Richard, go ahead. Nate, can I give you an outside-the-box either suggestion or just to get your take on it? Yeah. Okay, so what do you think of the idea? Let, let's, make it a, let's make it 60 yards and up, okay? Mm. What do you think of the idea of making a 60-yard and up field goal worth four, seven, you name the amount of points? And what kind? And then, first of all, I don't think the NFL would do that because they're such a conservative organization. But what kind of impact would that have if you rewarded the degree of difficulty for a kicker with added points beyond what the field goal is worth now? Um, it may kind of sway the – that's a good question. It may kind of sway the pendulum back because, it's, again, it's a risk-reward thing. I mean, we were out there in Sebastian Janikowski. We were playing in Oakland. He attempted like some crazy – when Lane Kiffin was the head coach, I don't remember that or not, but it was like a 70 – Yeah, right. like a 72 
72 or 76-yard field goal right before the end of the half. I think it would be great uh, if there was some way, maybe uh, whether there's more points or if it was if you attempt a 60-plus yard field goal instead of getting it at the, at the spot where the, the kick is attempted, maybe you get it at the 35-yard line of the team because that's the real risk, right, is not necessarily – um, you know, the miss, uh, it's more of where the other team's going to get the ball. So right. if you can kind of shift that, the, the risk side of it down a little bit to incentivize more long field goal attempts, maybe an interesting tact. But yeah, I mean, I think that, that people like that. I mean, that's really the only time you see either a game winner or somebody smacks through like a 60 yarder. That's the only time the players ever get really excited for their kickers is when they're, when they get that long, that long field goal. So, and I think the fans appreciate that too, that everybody likes the long ball. So, uh, a little bit more of that maybe. They make it a little bit more exciting. Um, no, I think I think that'd be a fun way to kind of to get it in there. Look, no one likes the the pooch punt anyway either, right? That's just kind of a boring play as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it'd give a chance to to showcase the kicker a little bit more and, uh, and add a little bit more points uh, by incentivizing. I think it's a good idea. The other upside from this change, Nate, more face time for kickers. People are going to watch the extra point now. More face time for kickers <laughs> is always good. a good thing. All right, Nate Caden kicked in the NFL for nine seasons. He is now the coordinator of retail development for the Iowa City Downtown District. Congratulations classic, on your new career, Classic Nate. post-jock career move. Typical, <laughs> you know, these jocks all do the same thing after they retire. Now, congratulations on the new career, Nate, and thank you for coming yeah. on. You bet, guys. Anytime. Thank you. Coming up on Hang Up and Listen, we'll talk to ESPN correspondent Jeremy Schapp about his excellent report on Sepp Blatter, the head of FIFA, who will be reelected later this week. Buck Wolf here for the HuffPost Weird News Podcast, where we sit down with the biggest, fattest, hairiest, loudest, sexiest, and oddest people in the world. On our May 14th episode, we'll take you inside the sword-swallowing, fire-eating world of Sideshow, where being called a freak is an honor. Jump on the crazy train of life. Subscribe to the HuffPost Weird News Podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. You'll be partying like a porn star. Barring a heart attack, natural disaster, or the promise of a gross of Rolexes and a steamer trunk packed with hundreds if they change their minds, the lords of international football who will gather in Zurich, Switzerland on Friday will elect Josef Sepp Blatter to a fifth term as the president of FIFA, soccer's governing body. His campaign platform, I've worked here for a long time. My manifesto is the work I have done in the last years in FIFA. I am now 40 years in FIFA, and I am 17 years the president of FIFA. This is my manifesto. It's quite a manifesto. It includes claims that Blatter bought votes to secure his first election in 1998 and has maintained his hammerlock on the job with carefully targeted largesse, plus strong arming and the efficient excommunication of rivals and turncoats. Bribery and kickback cases involving FIFA marketing partners, too, and, of course, evidence, too, that the last two successful World Cup bidders, Russia in 2018 and Qatar in 2022, paid massive bribes to land their tournaments. Sepp Blatter's manifesto was just one of the simultaneously laughable, troubling, and downright depressing moments in ESPN correspondent Jeremy Schapp's terrific E60 report on FIFA's Dear Leader, which you can watch online. Jeremy joins us from Connecticut, where we hope he is safe from FIFA's jackboots. Welcome, Jeremy. (laughs) I am, as far as I can tell. Yeah, I don't think Sepp's too worried about uh, me, our report, or anybody else, except perhaps the federal government of the United States. And even that probably doesn't worry him too much. We'll get to that. Let's begin with the arc of Sepp Blatter's career. Fill us in, Jeremy, on how he has managed to, to run FIFA for as long as he has and how he rose to power. 
Well, he, he came to FIFA in 1975 when it was really a very small organization. He was one of only 12 employees when he was hired back then. And he had worked for Longines, the Swiss, Swiss watch company in the sports timing division. Uh, he, he had worked for the Swiss Hockey Federation. He actually ran the Swiss Ice Hockey Federation. Uh, and when he got to FIFA, it was undergoing a lot of change. It had just the previous year um, welcomed a new president, João Havelange of Brazil, uh, who had different ideas about running the organization from him, his predecessor, Stanley Rouse, an Englishman who ran it uh, kind of like, uh, you know, uh, um, a, a, a hobby. Uh, FIFA wasn't really interested in making all the money that it could or spreading its influence. It certainly didn't uh, suggest that it was this massive force for good in the universe. Uh, no one compared Stanley Rouse to Nelson Mandela or Jesus Christ, as uh, they have recently compared Sepp Blatter. Uh, and so, as much as anyone, Sepp Blatter, as Havelange's right-hand man uh, for 23 years and eventually his successor, um, you know, created the culture that we now identify as the FIFA culture, one of cronyism and, and corruption and, and uh, bribery, among other things. So I don't know what the FBI is looking into Sepp Blatter about. Uh, no one does, really. But if I were to list his most grievous misdeeds, wow, it's a long list. But I'd put on top of the list the use of, well, the abuse of laborers, which you've documented and you've documented previously, and just the entire awarding of the Qatar Cup, probably the Russian Cup, but the Qatar Cup is one where you can't even argue with it. Everyone says it's a mistake. Where, where would you rank them among? his list of misdeeds, Jeremy? Well, I, I think that's really what changed the course of the narrative. I, I, I think up until December 2nd, 2010, uh, when the FIFA Executive Committee awarded 2018 to Russia and 2022 to Qatar, Sepp Blatter could be dismissed and FIFA could be dismissed as uh, corrupt, um, in some ways inept, greedy, but, but for the most part kind of harmless. Uh, there were bigger things to worry about in the world. Uh, but when you're talking about Qatar, which immediately struck so many people as a curious decision, to put it mildly, uh, and you're talking about the human rights abuses there, and you're talking about the fact that experts say that 4,000 workers will die there in the lead-up to the games in 2022 or the tournament in 2022, I think that made people stand up and take notice in a way that they hadn't before. And, you know, Sepp Blatter certainly said uh, things that have made him look like a dinosaur about, you know, girls wearing tighter shorts and women wearing tighter shorts when they play soccer. Uh, you know, uh, uneducated things about addressing racism in the sport. Everything can be solved. The players shake hands uh, at midfield. Uh, you know, kind of stunningly ignorant and, and reactionary comments. But Qatar is different. The people dying there uh, in support of the system, uh, which was not created to build the World Cup infrastructure, but has been there for decades, uh, and the fact that FIFA takes no responsibility for it, that there's no accountability, that there's no transparency, that there, there hasn't been even, there wasn't even an assessment uh, before awarding the 2022 tournament to Qatar. Uh, of who would build these things. Qatar, as you guys know, you know has 300,000 citizens. Most of the work that gets done there gets done by a million and a half, two million laborers from South Asia, mostly working in the construction business, and they're treated abominably. 
And the Nepalese actually came out this week and criticized FIFA and Qatar for refusing to let workers go home to attend the funerals of relatives who had died in the exactly. earthquake there. Jeremy, this uh, first of all, the piece was really, really well done. Uh, I could have done a little bit without some of the shots of you walking down the streets heroically, I but, why. but nothing I, I is. Thought, but no television is perfect, as we know. Part of the show. Yeah, we need someone to identify with. I think. <laughs> yeah, I know. You, I would have actually had someone like uh, you know Owen Wilson basically fill in that part for you walking down the streets. Of Europe. Uh, but maybe the budget wasn't there. Uh, no, but Jeremy, the one question that is interesting to me is how do you approach? I mean, I'm always interested in process. Mm-hmm. So when you sit down with E60 producers, and as we've both talked about, there are some phenomenal producers there. I mean, the top, top class. How do you approach going after or investigating, I mean, such an imposing guy and a guy who's not necessarily easy to get to, one where there's going to be a lot of expenditure from yeah. your company, so you have to have your company behind you. But when you sit down and sort of have a game plan, okay, how do we take on the story of Sepp Blatter? What, what's, what's that process like? I mean, it starts with research, you know, just finding out what what are the key moments, what have been the moments in his career, and then you also have to decide what what do you, how are you going to lay out an hour of television? Um, you know, you, you have to address Qatar, you have to address the bidding scandal around the 2018 and 2022 World Cup, so you know you've got to talk to people who are knowledgeable about that. Uh, but we also wanted to. Uh, help people understand how he had gotten to this place. So that meant uh, talking to his biographer, the only guy who's written a full-scale biography of him, and almost doing, you know, sports century, like going back and talking to people from his youth. Uh, you know, this is your life, Sep, without Sep on the stage. Um, but beyond that, the process of actually knowing what's going on, I mean, a lot of that, of course, as you know, is, is stuff that you don't see on camera, uh, conversations that take place uh, on the phone with people who don't want to be on camera, lunches and dinners and drinks, uh, and just saying, you know, we're going to go places uh, where we're not necessarily going to get an interview. And there are a lot of people who informed our reporting, of course, who didn't want to talk on camera. So you just say to yourself, we've, you know, we wanted to get this done by the election. That seemed like, you know, the natural hook. Um, and we had, I'd say, about six months, really, of working on this. And so we identified a couple of events that we wanted to be at, uh, where we knew we would be able to interview several people at the same time, um, and, and built our travel around those. And then it, the rest of the time, you're just, you know, working the phones and, and getting on planes to go see people. Uh, Jeremy, let's talk politics. 105 votes keeps him in office because FIFA has 209 members. Is that right? That's exactly okay. Right. So, and a lot of these votes are very small, not even nations, little parts of nations. And so, I get the impression that he's a good politician, and good politicians sometimes use whatever means. I'm thinking of more of a Game of Thrones politician where you give some people some gold rather than do everything democratically. But assess the politics. Chop their heads off. Yeah, assess the politics there. Assess how crafty a politician he is, and assess the chances for change. Well, he's been an extremely successful politician, but uh, he benefits from this, this system. Uh, as you said, there are 209 FIFA members. 
And that's more than the United Nations. That's more than the IOC. That's more. That's be, more than there are countries because right. Scotland you don't has have a thing to be a yeah. country to be a member yeah. of FIFA. And I think there's another thing. Certainly, we weren't the first to to report this or suss this out. But uh, you know, when we talked about you know the countries and the the territories that are full fledged members of FIFA, like Montserrat, which probably has fewer people, fewer um, citizens, less than 6,000 than, you know, uh, the neighborhood in Connecticut in which I live right now, um, you know, Montserrat and Dora, they all get a full vote. Uh, these tiny specks of territories. Uh, not only do they get a full vote, but they get a full share of World Cup profits. They get as much money as Germany or Brazil or Argentina. If you were the head of a federation uh, from a country that has benefited disproportionately from the system now in place, why would you want to see change? Right. There's a stasis that takes over, particularly when checks are being funneled to these small countries. But with Bladder, it, it, it's more than that. The, the thing that's always struck me, and I don't know whether your opinion changed at all after your reporting, is that is why the European nations and the United States and some of the South American nations haven't been able to muster the courage or the votes to stand up and say, enough of this. We need to reform this organization for real, not just through sham statements. There are a lot of reasons why, why that hasn't happened. I mean, first of all, uh, they can't do it through the voting process because they're outnumbered. And they can't... It would be, I think, uh, in their opinions, rash to just say, we're walking out on FIFA because we want to be treated better than the rest of the world. Um, that, that kind of smacks of colonialism, uh, of, you could argue, racism. You could argue a whole bunch of things that they don't want to be associated with. And beyond that, the World Cup, uh, which FIFA owns and controls, is a sure thing. It's the world's biggest event. Uh, is it possible? I mean, sure, we heard lots of people talk about, you know, the Western European countries walking away from FIFA and creating their own tournament. And you could say the Euros is a better tournament than the World Cup anyway, but it's not the same. And, and to do that uh, would take a lot of courage, and it wouldn't necessarily be the right decision, because who knows, maybe they've got a better shot eventually of changing things from within. You know, there's always next year. Uh, Bladder will be 83 next time around, and maybe he won't run. I think the frustrating thing for soccer fans, Jeremy, is just that they feel powerless um, through all this, you know. They are. Yeah, and that's ultimately what's, you know, I'm a huge world soccer fan. I love the sport. I will watch the World Cup regardless if Sepp Blatter is in power or not. But, you know, even I, I – it was interesting in watching your reporting, and you don't often do this, in hearing sort of some of the utter – I don't know if it was despair or just sort of frustration from some of your sources. Even the look on your face was like, man, there's just like nothing anyone can do. This is, this is the ultimate dictatorship, and there's no corrective policy. It's true. Um, it, it, it's – it is frustrating for soccer fans. It's frustrating for reformers. I, I think the moment uh, that summed that up best, uh, perhaps, maybe, maybe you felt the same way, was Leonard Johansson, who is the guy who could have won in 1998 um, and, and barely lost and was a reformer and was interested in changing the culture that Havelange and Blatter had created over the course of 23 years. Um, 
But but what you have in place is this system, uh, and it's not just the system within FIFA, but it's the system in Switzerland that allows FIFA to operate in this way. So I think if there is any real hope for change, I, I don't think it's necessarily a federal investigation in the United States, which we know is taking place, but we don't know the details. I, I think it might happen from within Switzerland. And we spoke to the Swiss parliamentarian, Roland Buschel, who, who wants to change the laws, who wants FIFA to have to answer questions the way that major billion-dollar corporations have to answer questions. And Switzerland has shown a willingness in the last couple of decades to change its own culture of secrecy. It doesn't want to be thought of anymore as the country where dictators or drug dealers or tax evaders can hide their money. And they don't want to be thought of as the place that harbors an organization like FIFA that has been unresponsive to calls for reform. Uh, If the Swiss change the laws and it's not registered anymore officially the same way as a yodeling association, as Buschel put it, things might change then. Hold on. Let it just end on this. Montserrat's lifetime record. Four wins, three draws, 18 losses with a goal differential of minus 77. Beautiful and, that's not, and that's not even the We're worst. Yeah. And that's not even the worst. Right. Jeremy Schapp is an ESPN correspondent. His report on FIFA and its president, Sepp Blatter, is available online. Jeremy, thanks for coming on. Thanks, guys. All right, it's time now for our afterball segment. I'm all kickered up today. So I think we should honor Gary Yepremian, who died last week at the age of 70. Yepremian, Cypriot, uh, early fame. He was on the Detroit Lions in the 1960s. He went on the Johnny Carson show. Did you know this, Mike Pesca? And yeah. Alex Karras, he told a story. Alex Karras asked him what he was celebrating when he ran off the field with his arms up in the air after kicking an extra point. And Yepremian replied, I kick a touchdown. I kick a touchdown. Well, I know that he was said to have said, I kick a touchdown. Well, yeah. Yeah. Karras was a big showman and a liar. I'd like to think that Garo Yepremian did race off the field with arms aloft after kicking an extra point. He had never kicked a football before showing up to try out for the Detroit Lions. Really? Really. Hmm. Mike Pasco, what's your Yepremian? On the gist, an upcoming interview will be I speak with Richard Thaler. Richard Thaler is a behavioral economist at the University of Chicago, perhaps best known for his book that he co-wrote with Cass Sunstein called Nudge. He has a new book out. And in that book, he talks about his interactions giving behavioral economic advice to a, to a sports notable who did not really want to take that advice. That man's name was Dan Snyder. Here now, and he does use the actual name of the Washington team, even though that's against slate policy, but that's okay. Here now, Richard Thaler talking about his dealings with Dan Snyder. I must say, it, Dan Snyder's owner's box puts all other owner's boxes to shame. It, it must seat at least 50 people. And, you know, the who's who of Washington was there. Alan Greenspan was there. While he was the Fed chair, uh, John Thompson, the old um, coach of Georgetown and the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. You you get the idea. Ola Ola Snyder's close personal friends. Exactly. And uh, we were told, come early, come early. So I walk in there and he's talking to a few guys. And remember, he had met me a couple months earlier. And I walk in and he knows I'm coming. And his reaction was, Who's this guy? Who invited him? He said that in front of everyone to make you feel like a small person? uh, uh, To feel welcome. (laughs) The funniest thing is, 
at one point, he, before the game started, he took me aside. You know, he, he didn't graduate from college. He's a college dropout because he started this company. And he said, you know, you know what you guys should do? You should give me an honorary degree. Now, the University of Chicago happens to be the fussiest university in the world with honorary degrees. <laughs> and they're basically only given to distinguished academics. Bill Clinton, when he was president, volunteered to come and give a commencement speech. He did not get an honorary degree. <laughs> so here's Dan Snyder asking me if I could arrange for him to get an honorary degree at the University of Chicago. I had to disappoint him. I said, maybe we could get an honorary MBA. Yeah. Uh, but oh. he wasn't interested. Oh, no, no. He's much, he's much better than that. It's far beneath him. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. Richard, what is your Yepremian? All right. My, first of all, my Yepremian is going to be horrible compared to yours because I didn't prepare. Um, so I apologize for 90 seconds of sucking, but I'll try to make it quick. I will, um, I will my, my thought is this. I've been writing a lot about Bill Simmons, not surprisingly. His, um, his exit from ESPN has been of great interest, certainly in what I do, writing about sports media. And this week, I had a chance to talk to Eric Shanks. That's the president of Fox Sports about the potential of adding Bill Simmons. And while he would not go so far as to outright say, I've talked to him, we want to add him, he did say something interesting. And this would be something that for any of you Simmons watchers to pay attention to. Fox is very, very good at bringing in people um, to have, for lack of a better word, part-time roles. They've done this with Grant Wall, my colleague, writes soccer at SI, but has a pretty prominent role as a Fox broadcaster. They've done this with Adrian Wojnarowski, obviously Yahoo Sports' is number one NBA guy, also covers the NBA for Fox. So if you want to project ahead, and I still think Bill Simmons is going to end up with kind of a Glenn Beck-style website for himself, I would not be surprised if part of Bill Simmons' future employment Fox is a part of, because I think there is a part of Bill that would love to try to stick it to his own employer and the one place that has the money, the incentive, and the wherewithal to have a long-term shot, even though I don't think it'll happen, but a long-term shot at going 1v1 with ESPN is Fox Sports. So remember this, keep that in mind, and when it doesn't actually happen, I will pretend I never talked about this. <laughs> you'll, you'll say it wasn't scripted. What do you want? <laughs> So, Stefan, what's your Garrow? Well, in January, during the initial flurry of Deflategate Balghazi coverage, a story made the rounds, not as many rounds as I would have thought, though, about ball doctoring in the NBA. Quotes from 1986 were unearthed in which Phil Jackson admitted that the New York Knicks championship team of 1973 routinely deflated the basketball. Jackson told the Chicago Tribune at the time that the Knicks did so because they had a small front court and a softer ball wouldn't carry them as high or as far off of the rim, negating some of their opponents' height advantage. Advantage. Plus, Jackson explained the Knicks passed a lot without dribbling, as we just heard on this podcast. So a softball didn't affect them much on offense. And it kept other teams from running on us because when they dribble the ball, it wouldn't come up so fast. After the quote surfaced, Jackson took to his favorite medium, Twitter, to predictably deny that the Knicks were cheating and assert that the balls still fell within regulations. The last part of that was, of course, media shitstorm avoidance ass covering because no one knew whether the balls were inflated exactly to the right weight as 
The New York Post discovered when it tracked down Princeton icon John McPhee subject, Rhodes Scholar, Nick's forward, and U.S. Senator Bill Bradley, who never made it as commander-in-chief, but was fingered by everyone as the deflator-in-chief. Bradley copped to traveling with a pin and letting air out of the balls. He said he had no idea what the pressure readings were. He didn't recall the refs ever checking. He did say that, like Tom Brady, he just liked a softer ball, which, because it didn't bounce as much off the rim, had a better chance of plopping in after a missed shot. Knicks broadcaster Marv Albert told The Post that he recalled a game in which Bradley took a pin out of either his jersey or shorts on the bench and guys surrounded him so nobody could see and put it into the ball. Then he started bouncing the ball. I never mentioned it on the air. Way to go, Marv. Nice reporting. All the stories referenced the 1973 championship team, but Bradley's skullduggery went back to at least 1970, the year the Knicks won their first title. In his contemporaneously written book, Miracle on 33rd Street, the New York Knickerbockers Championship Season, the late sports writer Phil Berger described what happened during Game 6 of the Eastern Division semifinals against the Baltimore Bullets. The Knicks had blown out the Bullets at home in Game 5, a game in which Willis Reed scored 36 points and had 36 rebounds. But on pages 210 to 11, Berger wrote, quote, in the playoffs, the emotional peaks to which teams were roused came and went. Consecutive furies were rare. Feelings could not be bullied. In the first quarter of the sixth game, neither team was up. Errors abounded. All the while, Bradley was fuming. What bothered him was the ball. Bradley liked the ball soft, inflated to the seven and a half pound legal minimum rather than the eight and a half pound pressure maximum. It was an easier ball to shoot. When it hit the rim, it gave. It was a shooter's ball. At home, New York kept its 12 balls soft. Sometimes the opposition complained. For a jumping team, it paid to have the ball springing off the rim. On the road, Knicks trainer Danny Whelan carried a needle to deflate the ball. Since the visiting team had its choice of ball, it was no devious ploy. But this afternoon, the ball Bradley wanted could not be found, and the veins on his neck showed when he ranted at officials, Powers, and Sokol to get him a new one. I love Bill Bradley, classic guy, meticulous, cerebral, perfectionist, craftsman, athlete who needs his tools to be precise. But I'm a little confused by Berger's story because if, as he wrote, the visiting team had its choice of ball, why didn't the Knicks deflate as necessary? Maybe Whelan misplaced the needle. Maybe Bradley hadn't perfected his in-huddled deflation technique. In any case... New York returned home for Game 7. Bradley made just four shots with the pre-deflated home court balls, but Dave DeBuscher and Dick Barnett made a lot more, and the Knickerbockers won 127 to 114. They would go on to defeat Milwaukee and Los Angeles for the first of their two obviously tainted championships. By the way, Stefan, until you said it, I never really put it together, but yeah, a way to avoid a shitstorm is to cover your ass. Good point. Yeah. I'm here to help. All right. That's what we do on Hang Up and Listen. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Please subscribe to Hang Up and Listens in iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slate podcasts. And when you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Please become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash listen. We had research help today from Sam Masling. We'd like to thank Richard Deitch of Sports Illustrated for joining us. You got it. Thanks, Stefan. See ya. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty and Gary Apremian. And thanks for listening. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.